Hey, good morning, everybody. Make sure you grab a cup of coffee. I've always said there's a fine line between the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of a good cup of coffee. So the Holy Spirit, John says, blows wherever he wishes, but you can drink as much coffee as you want. So get a little bit of both, and we're going to get into the Word of God. We are in Mark chapter 8. For those of you that might be joining us uh, for the first time or for uh, the first time in a long time, we've just been going through the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 8. And we're going to be in verse 27 through verse 38. Verse 27 through verse 38. I'm going to read through this whole passage, the gospel according to Mark, and this particular situation, um, a beloved story about the revealing of who Jesus is to his disciples. You can follow along with me in your Bibles or in your devices, and then I'll explain it. We'll respond. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And the others, they say, You're one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his, uh, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have just come upon the halfway mark of the gospel of Mark, halfway mark of Mark, where Jesus seemingly for the first time is revealing himself to his close group of friends, his disciples, in a powerful, significant, meaningful way. And in his revelation, we're going to get a few things about the way God seems to work. Talk about how, uh, we'll talk about his pace, we'll talk about his strategy, we'll talk about that particular calling on us, but this is that kind of epiphany, that Capernaum moment where Jesus reveals himself in a special way to his disciples that the rest of the crowds just don't seem to grab yet, just don't seem to gather at this moment in time. I say that because maybe we're on that same journey. 
Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or you've been a Christian for 50 minutes or you're not even sure if you are or not. You're just like, saw the coffee in the front and you're like, I'm just gonna grab a cup and you sat down. Glad you're here. This is that moment where I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal Jesus Christ to you too in whatever way he chooses to reveal himself to you. And it's gonna be different for you than, it's, than it is for me. Although we might get some universal things about Jesus, it's gonna be a different journey for each of us as we endeavor to follow him together because we're all in a different place. The way I think of it is uh, with one of my kids, my son Jude. We uh, recently got Jude one of those child uh, like step trackers for his wrist because Abby had one, I have one. Brianna has one, and he wanted one, so we got him, a, got him like a little inexpensive kid's version, and we quickly found out that he has twice as many steps as anyone else in the family. Uh, yeah, he's a little guy, and I, we think it's for two reasons. One, because he can't sit still, even if he's standing in one place, so if you were to stand right here with me, you would see him doing this. Like, no place to go, like he just can't keep his legs still. So we think that's one reason. We think the other reason is his legs are like half the length of the rest of the family's legs. So to keep pace with us, he needs like more steps. So the kid is like full of energy, walks around, covers a lot of space and brags about it on his little step tracker every day. He's like, I took 20,000 steps. (laughs) But we also realize something a little counterintuitive to that in that whenever we go for a walk, whenever... We walk around the block, we walk our dog, we go to a park, he's always trailing the rest of the family. And Brianna and I were sitting back like wondering about this uh, at one point, because like he takes twice as many steps, but whenever we go anywhere, he's always like 20 feet behind us, why? And I started to get frustrated with that. Like I've never, I've never lived in New York, but I feel like there's a little New York, like I need to get there in me. Like that big city mentality of like, I need to get to the destination, I'm in a rush, I need to get there, church is starting, I need to go to soccer, it's Saturday, like whatever it is, I'm just like, bam! And I remember one day walking, and I don't even remember where we were going, I just felt like this obligation to get there, right? And Abby's walking, and Brianna's walking, and I'm walking, and I look back, and Jude is 15 feet behind me, and I'm like, dude, come on, you need to like, we got to get there. We're late. We're actually like 10 minutes early, but we're late. And he walks up to me, and this is just one of many times, walks up to me and pulls out this bouquet of flowers that he had picked up along the way, and he said, I'm making a bouquet for mom. After I cried quietly inside in the darkness of my own dirty heart, <clears throat> I realized that... Uh, Sometimes his slower pace allows him to see things that rushed dad misses along the way. And I realized, man, sometimes a slower pace is a better pace. First thing I want to bring out of this revelation of who Jesus is is that sometimes God's pace is slow too. Sometimes he purposely slows down so that we'll catch up with him. I want you to see this. It's going to take a little bit of digging, but we'll see this in the way he reveals himself to Peter and maybe even to us. Look at verse 27 with me again. It says, and Jesus went on 
with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi starts here. Caesarea Philippi was definitely not a Jewish town. It was nowhere near Jerusalem. Uh, This was far north, Hellenistic city, pagan city, about 25 miles uh, north of the Sea of Galilee on the base, southern base of Mount Hermon. So it's way up there in the sticks, okay? That's all you need to know. Far away from the Jewish big city, it's far up in the sticks. And in ancient times, it was called originally Paneus named after the god Pan, where we get the English word panic. Taking people from this church to this site in Israel about three times, and on that tour, we'd walk up to this site, and at this giant cave, you'll see at the end of where uh, the Jordan River would flow up up to the north, a giant chasm where water would sometimes spill out, the overflow, the residue of the, uh, of the River Jordan. And it was here in this cave that people would sacrifice to, to the god of panic for fertility, for safety of their children and family. It was a pagan city. It wasn't just a pagan city. In later times, its name would be changed to Caesarea Philippi. Philippi after the brother of King Herod and Caesarea in honor of the Caesars. It was common for cities to be renamed Caesarea. Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea Philippi in honor and homage and worship of the emperor cult. Not only that, but archeology span tells us that it was also previously the site of the god Baal, who you may recognize from the Old Testament. Meaning, if you remember anything else, that the place that Jesus chooses to reveal himself most significantly to his disciples, the ones who will change the world and follow after him, people like you and people like me and people like Peter, the place he reveals himself is in a city full of idols. This should cause us to always, should always beg the question for us, what are the idols or the gods of our own city? And be careful when we answer questions like this. For my inclination, whenever I get asked that question, is to point out everything in the city that I just don't like. But idols, according to the Old Testament, the imagery we get in the scriptures and the New Testament, are not like that. It's nothing about your preference. It's not even about your ideologies. And it's... For those of you that may think of an idol and the first thing that you think of is a statue that you kneel at made out of gold or carved wood, Uh, it's a lot deeper than that as well. An idol, if we were just to strip it down to its basic form, is really just something in your life that elevates itself to an ultimate thing over and above God. The tricky thing about idols is they're usually good things. They're not often bad things. It's things like money and relationships and status. It might be the job you want. It might be the job you have right now. It might be a particular place that you occupy in society. It might be your comfort level. It could be an endless laundry list of things, most of which are good, right? Idols, as Tim Keller would often quip, 
are just good things that we've elevated to ultimate things that have taken the seat of God. They're the things that we ultimately trust and look to and depend on. And so, yes, in an animistic culture or in the Old Testament, that thing might have been a, a carved image. But for us, it's whatever's in your life right now that you look to most in that moment of stress. And it's not just personal, it's societal. What would be the idols of Santa Barbara? You could probably think of something right now, right? Good things. Good things that we turn into ultimate things instead of trusting God. God is by nature something you've given ultimate allegiance to. Now it's against the backdrop of a city full of those things. But Jesus begins to ask these poignant questions. He says in verse 27, 28, on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? What do, what do people think about me? And they told him, John the Baptist, so they're listing off a couple examples. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, we don't know if people are comparing him to these guys, or they think he's literally like Elijah from the dead. What we do know from this example is that people are so prone to go back to old categories. This is just how our brain works, right? In order to conserve energy, your brain likes to take it, the environment and stuff them into categories and patterns that you've seen before. It's actually an amazing part of your brain. That's why you're not exhausted this morning because your brain does stuff like that. The problem is when something new comes along, our brains have a hard time with that. <laughs> when Jesus comes along. The brain doesn't know what to do with that, and so it tries to stuff him into something we're used to and are familiar with and can control. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Jesus then turns the question on them, and I would say, since we are his disciples as well, he turned the question on you. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers him. Now, when, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He's, he's speaking about you in the plural. He's saying, who do my disciples speak? So right now, Peter's answering on their behalf. This is awesome. Peter's now stepping into a particular role as a, as a leader of the disciples. But we also see that this is what the, the answer coming forward is what the disciples have gathered at this point. He says, you are the Christ this is awesome because if you remember in Mark chapter 6, these very disciples were comparing him to John the Baptist. They're learning. They're learning. They're not succumbing totally to the crowds. Like walking with Jesus actually changes you, right? Following this, this Jewish rabbi actually does something. It rewires your mind if you let it. It opens space in your heart to the working of the Holy Spirit. It changes your heart. It changes you. We see it. What does it mean to be the Christ? Well, when I was a kid, I thought it was Jesus' last name. Like Chris Lazo, Jesus Christ. Or something you like said out loud 
when you hurt your foot or something, but hopefully when mom wasn't around. Chris Lazo, Jesus Christ. But it's less like a last name and more like a title. It'd be less like Chris Lazo and it'd be more like John Smith, Secretary of State. Or John Smith, MD. Or Jesus Christ, the Christ. Christ is a Greek word meaning the anointed one, the one who is chosen and marked by God. It comes from the Hebrew word uh, Messiah or literally the Mashiach and refers to this Old Testament character that God the Father had anointed for a specific purpose. If you read all the Old Testament, it's not about crazy end time scenarios about Russia, Iran, or the United States. The Old Testament is about God's kingdom being poured out on a broken, hurting world, and God looking at our sorry, broken estate and saying, I want to pour out justice and righteousness on a broken, weary land. And king upon king in Israel's history trying to do that and failing miserably, and so God promising a better king, an anointed king, who would bring justice to roll down like streams in a river and righteousness on a broken and hurting world. That's why in another gospel, in Luke chapter four, we don't get this same story in Mark, but in Luke chapter four at the very beginning when Jesus comes in on the scene and he introduces himself there, what does he say in the synagogue? He quotes a famous prophecy in Isaiah introducing himself there in a Jewish synagogue by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm anointed, he's saying right there. I'm the guy, the guy to do what? He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm the guy. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're not referring to his last name, we're referring to his title, who he is and what he came to do. He's the guy who's going to bring to fulfillment the entire New Te Old Testament and what it promises, the kingdom of the living God. And Peter, for the first time in his journey, realizes that. What I want you to see is less the declaration by Peter and less the questions by Jesus and more the timing. My first point is that God's pace is sometimes slower than ours. This first declaration in Mark, this is the first declaration in Mark that Jesus is the Christ, at least by his disciples. We're halfway through the gospel. Up until this point, he's been accused of demons. He's been called a great teacher. He's been referred to as the second coming of John the Baptist. He's been called a lot of good things and bad things, much like he is today. It took half a gospel for Peter to get it. And at this point, the story will take a dramatic turn. It's like this is a catalyst. The recognition that Jesus is the anointed one of God. Now we're going to see from this point on a rapid turn in a particular direction. 
towards the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his arrest, his betrayal. But I want you to notice, this is what I want you to pull out. It took half a gospel for the disciples to figure this out. So y'all are gonna be okay, all right? That's what I'm saying. This should give us hope. I've been doing this for almost half my adult life and feel like I know less sometimes than what I thought I knew 14 years ago. When I read stories like this and I see the patience and graciousness of Jesus, but also his desire to walk with his disciples, that gives me hope. The truth is, God's pace is that the work of the Holy Spirit is sometimes, and I, I would say often, slow. Our eyes might get attracted to the headlines in the scriptures and the headlines in church. The powerful, spontaneous movements of God that blow the top off the church, you know, and the healings and the exquisite, incredible details that happen right here and right here and right here. And we skip over the margin, the mundane and the ordinary, where I think God loves working in the boring details. The truth is, most of the Holy Spirit's work seems to be slow and sometimes invisible. And so for those of you who have not seen that outlandish breakthrough you were hoping for, take hope. God's working even when you don't see it. He's working in the silence. He's working in the loneliness. He's working in the depression. He's working when things don't work out the way you expected. He's working when your five-year spiritual plan has not quite made it to where you thought it should be. He's working even when you've been abandoned. He's working even when you are by yourself. He's working even when you lose your job. He's working even when you're confused. He's working even when you stop working for him. And right here, after what must have felt like years for Peter to just understand a basic truth, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is still right there with him saying, you're right. God's pace is slow, we could also say that God's strategy is different. It's not just his timing, it's his methods. They just don't always match the way that we would typically do things. Have you ever felt that way? You ask God for something in a prayer and he gives you the answer, but it was totally not what you were expecting. Like the, the classic prayer, God, make me more humble. And so he like just destroys everything in your life. No, just like horribly disappoints you, and you're like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I meant like flip the switch of humility. I, I, I didn't mean like put me down a rung. <laughs> He's all, well, you asked for it. Sometimes God's strategy is different. I want you to see the strategy of God and the reaction of Peter right here. Verse 31 through 33. After Peter names him, you're the Christ. Jesus then begins to remind him what he came to do. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. <laughs> I don't know what that phrase means. It just sounds so funny. I imagine Jesus just at the table, just like 
casually talking about the Mediterranean weather and just being like, also I'm gonna die in three days, but I'll pull off my own resurrection. Can you please pass the hummus? And Peter, look at Peter's reaction. He takes him aside and begins rebuking him. <laughs> rebuking Jesus. The word there that Mark uses is the strongest, strongest phrase for rebuke. It's, it's the same word used of Jesus when Jesus expels a demon. <laughs> so this is what Peter, Peter is highly condemning Jesus in public right now. But turning and seeing his disciples, I love this. I love what uh, Joseph said earlier. Uh, the, the gathering of the people of God is not individualistically driven. We are one. We are a family. And it's almost like this is between Jesus and Peter, but Jesus knows it's not. He turns and he sees the disciples. He sees that they're all integrated together, and he wants to call this out in public. He rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Jesus calls you Satan, that is a bad day. And it might even seem harsh. You, you might even look at Peter as a compassionate person that just loves his Lord. And I agree. I, I, I think there is that in there. What would warrant such a rebuke from Jesus? You have to understand that part of it is because God's strategy is different than ours. It was certainly different from Peter's. You know what Peter's strategy was? I'll tell you in 10 seconds. Peter was a northerner rudimentary, roughnecked, Galilean fisherman zealot. If you're not sure what that means, it means he was a freedom, fighter, a freedom fighter from the north. He carried a sword and he would use it. And his version of a Messiah looked a lot different than some of the other disciples and certainly different than Jesus' version of a Messiah. You know what his version was? I'm gonna follow Jesus Christ and he's gonna, he's gonna bring to pass the promises of the Old Testament. He's gonna bring righteousness and justice to bear on Israel through the sword. And I've got one too. And I'm gonna take some guys with me and I will sit at the right hand side of the Messiah when he comes into his glory. Peter believed in Jesus, you're the Christ. It's just that his view of Jesus' role was still conflated with the halls of power. Violence, overthrow, greed. Now for us, especially those of you that grew up in the church, you, you might assume this. You've read Isaiah chapter 53. You know about the suffering servant who lays down his life for the sheep. You know that that's the Messiah, but you have to understand Back then, the suffering servant was not thought of as the Messiah. They were two different people. When Jesus came in on the scene, he said, they are the same, and it's me. And when he, said, when he, tells, when he tells Peter, I'm not doing things your way. I didn't come to use a sword. I didn't come to fight. I will win, but it's gonna come from a way different angle than what you're used to. He actually says the Son of Man must suffer many things. He doesn't say the Son of Man will suffer. He says must. In other words, it has to work out this way, Peter. 
I won't be collateral damage. Like this is the Father's goodwill is that I would come and the way that I would usher in God's presence and his kingdom is through losing, through surrendering my life and dying. Could you imagine a freedom fighter? <laughs> a guy whose entire upbringing was, was based on violence and overthrowing the oppressive regime. Could you imagine telling him, yes, I am your leader, and my plan A is to get arrested and die. <laughs> Could you imagine how nonsensical this would have sounded? I would have been mad too if I were Peter. And yet I do this all the time. <laughs> how often do we conflate our ideologies, whether it's our view of politics, of race, of gender, of the consumeristic, low commitment, ease of life in Santa Barbara, and on and on, you name it. Our ideology and our lens by which we look at the world, how often and how easy it is for us to conflate that with the way of Jesus. Peter tries to make Jesus fit into his political ideology right here and his method. And Jesus actually stops him, listen to this, and tells his right-hand man that he's being influenced by the devil. I think if there's anything we could take from this exchange, and this is not an easy thing to take, but anytime we conflate Christianity with our political ideology or method of winning today. It's demonic. Jesus is on a higher plane than all of our ideologies. Doesn't mean we can't have one, but he's on a higher plane than our politics. Doesn't mean we can't have them. In fact, Jesus had his politics. He wasn't apolitical, he had his politics. You can read them in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. The problem with his politics is that they're often just not very compatible with ours. And it's hard for us to deal with that. And so we push, we push aside things that don't make sense. And we replace them with what does, just like Peter. You're saying in his mind, this doesn't make sense the way that you want to conquer the world, Jesus. I'm going to do things my way. God's strategy is to give his life away as a suffering servant through which he will conquer the universe. And for some of us, we've grown up with that story, the story of Christmas and the story of Easter. So often we've lost a sense of its teeth, but this is radically crazy. There's no politician, there's no leader in the world, there's no corporation or CEO that would, in their right mind, lead their organization or country with Jesus' words. Think about that. Just read the first, first 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. It just doesn't make sense. Could you imagine 
a fast-growing company leading with to its shareholders, blessed are the poor. You get fired. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who give a cup of water to someone who's hungry and oppressed and marginalized in my name, for they're giving it to me. I'm thirsty. None of this makes sense in the world we live in. And this is precisely what Jesus came to do. As a litmus test, you know that this is working on you when you're able to do two things. Challenge your own tribe with the way of Jesus. Not other people's tribe, your tribe. And two, listen to people from other tribes. But the last thing that Jesus does is he then invites the disciples to follow in his same path. This is where it gets bonkers. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? We might think of Jesus as going to the cross and Christmas as being a story of Jesus coming and Easter being a story of Jesus dying. But in this full frame of thought, Jesus is saying, it's not just me. All who want to be disciples, I've shared a model of what my life is going to look like. Can you imagine Peter at this point? Not only is he deeply offended by his king's methodology, but now his king is like, and you follow me too. Lay down your sword, die to yourself. When Jesus says to deny ourselves, he's not saying to lose your unique identity as an image bearer of God. He's not saying to be all of the things that God wired you to be. He's not saying to be homogenous, fit in with the crowd. He's not saying to enjoy the good things in life that he's given you. He's simply calling us to allow him by the Holy Spirit to prune the things that are getting in the way of us being more like him. Christianity isn't some weird get out of jail free card. It's a journey where the King of glory and the Lord of lords and King of kings invites broken men and women and children who are just tired of what the world has been offering them, restless with what they've been facing, a better way, saying, I will show you the eternal kind of life that's wrapped up in me and in only me. But in order to do it, you have to flip the world's way of doing things on its head. The world loves power and greed and authority and lust and violence. I do things a little different. And if you trust me, if you follow in that methodology just for a little while, it will seem counterintuitive to you, but you will understand by experience that I am the breather of eternal life. And as he would say in the Gospel of John to the person who believes in me, out of their innermost being will flow rivers 
of living water. I'm going to ask uh, Joseph and Robert to come up and to lead us through song and response, communion. As we do, as we prepare ourselves to answer the same question that Jesus would ask us and is asking right now, maybe a way that you can process his question, who am I to you? Maybe you would also say, you're the Christ, but maybe you're like me and you find those words tumbling out of your mouth a little too easily. I want to give you two questions to help you process that with a little more grit. One, remember God's pace is slow. He's probably a little slower than you. So ask yourself between you and God, God, where do you need me to slow down? What have I been missing in my fast pace? What are you wanting to see that's right in front of me? Where do you want me to slow down? Second question. Remember that God's strategy is different, and sometimes in his different strategy, he confronts ours. He confronts our idols. And so maybe you, like Peter, would ask this question in your heart. What might you be confronting in me? Where do you need me to slow down? And what do you want to move out of my way? I want to invite us as a church to lay these at his feet and reconfess Jesus Christ together, not just individually, as the Messiah, the promised one who was sent by the Father, not just to forgive us of our sins, but to change us into his image that a broken and hurting world starting in Santa Barbara and moving abroad might see through our abounding love for one another. Jesus Christ didn't just die, he is alive. And he's alive in you. And he's alive in us. Let's respond.